Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, and today Bill Cohan is here to talk about carried interest. That is the tax code loophole that Wall Street loves and Washington is trying to get rid of. And later on, Ben Landy is here with Julia Yaffe to talk about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Asia, including an expected visit to Taiwan. Julia and Ben talk about what China thinks about the Pelosi trip and if Pelosi really had any choice not to go. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Greetings, everyone. We're here with Bill Cohane, our expert on, on all things Wall Street. Teddy, it's nice to be back with you again. Bill, as part of the sort of surprise announcement that came out of Washington, that there would be not build back better, but some sort of reconciliation package brokered by, by Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, part of the revenue from this is going to come from what is called closing the carried interest, quote unquote, loophole, which sort of implies that it was an accident. But Bill, let's just start with this from reading your column over the weekend. Um, this is kind of intentional, right? Well, I mean, it's hardly a loophole at this point. It's been part of the tax code now for so long that it is the tax code. It's it's intentional. You know, a loophole, it sort of implies that it found its way in there kind of by mistake and was never fixed. This is a, you know, a major league benefit for the 0.0001% of Americans who make money from money, uh, who are in the private equity or hedge fund world. It was never repealed during the Trump administration is because real estate moguls, real estate developers also benefit from it. So that would be Trump's cronies. But it basically is, um, you know, this idea that you get a carried interest, you get a participation in a deal that you construct if it pays off, you know, using some of your capital and some of other people's capital. I mean, the typical way this works is, you know, you invest, uh, you know, in a leveraged buyout of Safeway uh, supermarket stores and you put up a small amount of the equity, oh, I don't know, say a billion dollars and borrow the rest of, say, six billion or whatever. And over time, that billion dollars is worth, say, two billion. And then if you're the general partner, you get 20% of that increase uh, between one billion and two billion. So you get, you know, say, 200 million. What tax rate do you pay on that? Do you pay ordinary income tax? As if, like you know, like you and I do, Teddy, or do you only have to pay a capital gains tax because some reason it's taxed uh, the way a capital gain would be taxed? Well, they've basically 
finagled the tax code so that they only have to pay capital gains tax, which at the moment is you know twenty percent versus whatever thirty five percent for uh, ordinary income. Right. So the idea here, just to really distill it down, is basically the debate is whether or not some private equity honcho should pay the income tax rate, which is obviously going to be very high for people in that income bracket because it's labor, right? It's just like working at at Puck or at McDonald's. Yes, they're doing their job. They should pay income taxes like you know everybody else is just doing their job. Right. The counter argument is that this is more similar to a person who is investing in stocks uh, on the side or, you know, someone's who is investing their money and making money and that's, uh, they pay a capital gains rate. And you can see why, obviously, it's extraordinarily self-interested for, for people in the private equity industry to believe that they should pay a lower t- capital gains rate. Play the devil's advocate here. I know, I know you said you believe that they should pay the higher rate, but like, give me the best argument for why these people should not pay 40% on, on a capital gain as opposed to 20% or 25%. Oh, because they're, you know, we're putting risk capital, we're risking our capital, our, uh, we're risking our own and our limited partner's capital. So therefore, if you want to induce us to do that, then we have to be rewarded with a lower tax rate, just like if we were investing in Netflix or uh, Google or Berkshire Hathaway, you know, for us to put our capital at risk. And if we get a reward, we should be able to keep more of it because we've agreed to put that capital at risk. But they're really just doing their jobs. Uh, Their job is to put their own capital and other people's capital uh, at risk. And really, how much risk are they really taking? I mean, private equity is uh, probably the greatest wealth creation vehicle that's uh, ever been created in the history of the world. Bill, so it should be no surprise that this loophole or, or non-loophole, whatever you want to call it, closing this is extraordinarily politically popular. Like I think even Trump ran on it in 2016. But then decided not to do it because his buddies in the real estate world didn't like it. But like the, the idea that attacking the wealthy and you know, especially you know, the private equity industry you know, this is clearly something that favors only a very, very small percentage of people benefit from this. The reason it's top of mind, Bill, is the Democratic bill, $15 billion or so of the pay for from that comes from this. I know you and I both are skeptical that that $15 billion is going to end up in the final revenue package. And that's a pretty small percentage of, you know, what obviously the several hundred billion dollar pay for, though, it is also very politically popular. Tell me how many times you've heard of some ambitious plan to close the carrot interest loophole that has died a quiet, somber death. Uh, more years than you've, you've been alive, Teddy. This has been going on for a very long time because it doesn't make any sense that Steve Schwartzman pays less in tax than his secretary on a percentage term. People who make money from their labor get taxed at a higher rate than people who make money from capital. And that doesn't seem fair, especially since the people making money from capital are a lot wealthier than the people who make money from their labor. So it doesn't seem equitable. Uh, And yet, you know, every time it comes up, whether it's because, you know, our friend Wayne Berman lobbies Chuck Schumer 
and reminds him where his back is being scratched by private equity and hedge fund and real estate developers uh, in New York, then, uh, you know, somehow it, it disappears. And also it's small potatoes, as you said. It's, uh, you know, $14, 15000000000 billion on a multi-hundred billion dollar uh, legislative package. So why piss off some of your biggest campaign uh, donors for this small uh, reward? that you get. And yet it is incredibly inequitable and they've got enough money. I mean, you know, Steve Schwartzman, did he make close to a billion dollars last year? You know, it's not like they need any more benefit from the tax code than they already have because they already get a huge tax benefit because the debt that they borrow or a large portion of the debt that they borrow to do leveraged buyouts is tax deductible, which makes the whole economics of a leveraged buyout work, which is the whole way or one of the main ways they've become incredibly wealthy. So leveraged buyout moguls are just taking advantage of every twist and turn that the tax code offers and make sure that it never disappears. The advantage never disappears. So your, your prediction, Bill, at the end of this is private equity will beat Washington. Well, as usual, private equity beats Washington. I did hear one little twist today, which I haven't been able to verify, but if it's true, could sort of make the whole thing moot. And, and that is that I think what I heard was that the way the definition of, of capital gain has been working in private equity world is that you have to hold the company for three years before you sell it. And if you keep it for three years and then you sell it, then capital gains kicked in. But this bill would move it from three years to five years. And so if they move it if you, you know, like five years, you have to hold a company for five years before you sell it, and then it kicks in, and then you can get capital gains rate, and that's the deal. And again, I don't know whether this is actually what's in the bill or how it would work, because, you know, I haven't seen the fine print. But if that were the case, then I'm sure the private equity world would go for it. Your buddy Wayne Berman would go for that in a second, because, you know, most private equity guys do hold their companies for five years or more. And so to take this issue off the table forever and ever by just saying you have to hold your company for five years instead of three years, I'm sure they'd agree to that. And then this issue would go away and they're giving off the sleeves off their vest. Bill, this is a fascinating look into the sausage making of, of, of Washington, which is because we're, we're having this one conversation about this one asset class, but I feel like you could have very similar conversations about lots of you know peculiar uh, carve-outs for various interest groups from climate to healthcare to whatnot, where you're always curious, like, why does this one little thing that is very politically unpopular persist? This is a great kind of case study in that. Bill, thanks for uh, coming by. Thank you, Teddy. And we'll be right back with Ben Landy and Julia Yaffe to talk about the Pelosi trip to Asia. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back. I'm Benjamin Landy, executive editor at Puck. And because I have not yet had my second cup of coffee today, I'm here with Julia Yaffe to tell us why we should or should not be terrified about Nancy Pelosi flying to Taiwan. Hey, Julia, what's going on? Hi. Well, it seems like she probably will fly to Taiwan because, well, basically it's unleashed this game of international chicken. And it's a kind of game of who blinks first and the stakes are pretty damn high because Xi Jinping of China has been making very clear that reunification with Taiwan, basically folding Taiwan back into China, is very high on his list of priorities. And Nancy Pelosi going there to show support for Taiwan as an independent country would really upset him. So the question is, how does China respond to a potential visit from uh, the Speaker of the U.S. Congress? And um, does it set off World War III or not? Right. The Chinese obviously have their own domestic politics they have to grapple with. They've made these threats, and presumably there are domestic political consequences if they back down. But nobody really wants World War III. Um, and setting aside the question of whether the U.S. ought to fight World War III with China over the sovereignty of an island off their coast, it's a reality that the credible threat of a U.S. military response is one of the only things that is holding back Beijing from its long-term project of reunification. So Pelosi, as a proxy for Biden, can't be seen to be scared off from this potential planned visit to Taipei. Exactly. Because then the credible threat of a military umbrella over Taiwan just, just evaporates. This is when you get into how much of geopolitics is just kabuki theater, right? How much of it is just a psychological perception of whose threats are credible, who seems stronger, who has a more credible message. I mean, everybody gets the sense that Biden doesn't really think that it's a good idea. He clearly can't tell the Speaker of the House not to go. He has no control over her. And he, given his over three decades in Congress, has respect for the separation of powers. And he's like, you know, I can't tell her not to go. 
in so he has not said those words, but in so many words, he says, I can't tell her not to go. But he has said in the last couple of days, he said that basically the military, the U.S. military doesn't think it's a good idea. <laughs> but at the same time, now that it's out there, she kind of can't not go. And again, this is where we get into all of this, like what's credible and what isn't, whose threats and whose guarantees are credible and what isn't, even when like not a single missile is fired, not a single plane goes up in the sky. It is all about this very vague, intangible thing called credibility. The United States has this longstanding policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to the treatment of Taiwan. Exactly. And then people have been worried for a little while that Biden has been sort of tiptoeing away from that. And yet it seems like we've just entered a new phase of strategic ambiguity where, for instance, Biden says, yeah, of course we'll defend Taiwan militarily. And then people in the administration say, no, no, he didn't really mean that. Pelosi says she's going to go. Biden says, I don't think it's a good idea, but I can't really stop her. And then the Chinese are like, we may or may not be doing these military exercises. We may or may not be, you know, moving things into position. Yeah. Ambiguity all around. Where did all of this come from? Were there elements within the State Department or the administration who are more hawkish, who sort of put this idea out there in order to essentially trap Biden and Pelosi and having to commit to this trip so that they don't have egg on their face backing down? Uh, no, I think that, you know, Pelosi is seen as very hawkish on China. You know, she is famous for going to visit Tiananmen Square right after the massacre of protesters there in 1989 and unfurling this big banner in support of the protesters who were killed, which infuriated the government, the Chinese government at the time. But there are, you know, hawks here in Washington who are currently out of power, uh, you know, China hawks who think that this is a really dumb move, that it needlessly provokes the Chinese government and basically provokes a confrontation that the U.S. isn't ready to handle for no reason, whereas Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, could actually do a lot more because as Speaker of the House, she could push through, for example, some kind of military aid package for Taiwan and get it ready for the kind of confrontation that's clearly coming. because. It's not so much for domestic political reasons in China, but Xi Jinping is clearly obsessed, almost in the kind of way that Putin has been obsessed with Ukraine, has been obsessed with reunifying China, getting Hong Kong to be part of mainland China, basically totally scrapping the one country, two systems part, unfurling this genocide in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs and and basically homogenizing the culture there and making these people basically as much like the Han Chinese as he can. You know, the timeline that people are kind of bandying about in China circles in D.C. is that he's thinking about making a move on Taiwan within the next 18 months and that it would have been even sooner had Putin not attacked Ukraine and got an egg on his face there. All of this is to say that this is what's circulating in the kind of national security foreign policy circles in D.C., people know that this is coming, that this is kind of what is on Xi Jinping's mind, that an American intelligence community is feeding them this, that, that China is going to make a move, China is going to make a move on Taiwan, going to make a move. And what can we do to position ourselves for this? And there is frustration, I think, with Nancy Pelosi doing this in that she might be hastening the conflict that was put off Ukraine gave us some more time to prepare Taiwan and Pelosi might be 
shortening that time back down and taking away the time we got to prepare Taiwan. We should say we're recording this on uh, Monday afternoon now, at which point uh, Nancy Pelosi has landed in Singapore. I think her next stop is Malaysia. So we don't yet know whether she is going to arrive in Taiwan or not. Julia, do you want to take a, a final bet on whether she's going to make that stopover? I think she will. I think at this point, there's no room for her to back out. All right, there you have it, folks. The powers that be is canceled next week on account of World War III. <laughs> Julia, <laughs> Julia, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking time to come by. I've lived a good life. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.